0: You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Violent Femmes formed in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1981 by Brian Ritchie, Victor DiLorenzo, and Gordon Gano, Ritchie and DiLorenzo had been playing as a rhythm section before Gano joined as the singer and primary songwriter. After having trouble booking gigs around town, they began playing acoustically on the street, where they were discovered by James Honeyman Scott of The Pretenders. The Pretenders were playing a show in Milwaukee that night and invited Violent Femmes to open for them. After Shake Records became interested in releasing an album, they booked studio time with producer Mark Van Hecky. When the label deal fell through unexpectedly, they still kept the studio time with the help of a loan from DiLorenzo's father. Eventually, Slash Records heard the recordings and released their self-titled debut album in 1983. In this episode, for the 40th anniversary, Gordon Gano, Brian Ritchie, and Victor DiLorenzo reflect on how the album came together. This is The Making of Violent Femmes.
1: Hey, this voice is Gordon Gano's voice. That's me. And I play in a band called Violent Femmes, and we're talking about the first album that we recorded, which came out 40 years ago. Well, I started writing songs and then didn't stop when I was about probably about 13 or maybe 14. And then 15 is when I think I started being at some place with my writing that some of the songs on uh, the Violent Femmes first album were written when I was 15. It certainly was therapeutic in that I remember times thinking, let's say the the week was done for school and after the weekend, it's going to start up again. And I wasn't happy about it. And there may be no plans of, of anything on the weekend or anything that I was excited about. But I thought, if I write a song that I think is really great, then I've really done something. So I really had a drive with writing songs. And and so that did make me feel a sense of some accomplishment. And it certainly has turned out that way because some a lot of songs on Violet Femme's first album were probably written during a weekend where I thought, if I write one good song, I'll feel like I did something this weekend. You know, it's like that I felt good about and it was what an investment in my future I had you know I started to feel like that's what it was going to be I even knew that then that that's like a 15 year old telling people that all it's going to do is make me feel bad if somebody just nods and smiles and I know they don't really get it so I'll just keep it to myself and just thought I'm going to make records and I'm going to be in a band I felt like this is what I was going to do but I thought No one's going to really believe me that I'm really going to do this. my plan was to go to New York City. That's where I was born and getting into the, all the punk rock stuff that was happening. And I had visited an older brother in New York City and and just felt like it was a transformative experience and really confirmed for me that playing uh, in uh, a rock band or a punk band or doing my own songs, that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I made that trip when I was 15. And then I started doing that a little bit. And that's where Brian Ritchie had uh, seen me, heard me play, and then at some point he introduced himself to me. I'm Brian Ritchie, uh, myself and
2: Victor DiLorenzo, who was the original drummer for the band and who plays on the album. Uh, We played in a lot of bands in the early Milwaukee punk and new wave kind of scene. And we just had a rhythm section that would play with pretty much anybody. But we also played in psychedelic bands, jazz bands. We, we didn't really care. We were just up for a new musical adventure any day. Gordon, I met when he was still in high school. I was a few years older than Gordon, but it was you know significant in a cultural sense because he was living with his parents. I was out on my own. I was a full-fledged bohemian <laughs> professional musician and he was like a kid and he had never been in a band before. So it was really interesting because Victor and I were quite experienced and Gordon had, had, never played with a rhythm section before. So
3: having us who were pretty good, he was lucky. Hello, the voice you're hearing is the voice of Victor DiLorenzo. Well, the whole introduction I had to Brian Ritchie was through a friend named Jerry Fortier. We were at a bar one night in Milwaukee and Jerry said to me, hey, there's a friend of mine outside. His name is Brian Ritchie. He's a bass player and I think you should meet him. I think you guys might get along and maybe play some music together. So when I went outside, I met this cocky young kid named Brian Ritchie and I liked the the pizzazz that he had. And I figured, well, if he speaks this well and he's this interesting, maybe the music is gonna follow suit and it, it will be fun to play some music with him. So I think maybe a week or so later, we got together and started playing as a rhythm section. And that continued for a while, and we were lending our talents out to different people in the Milwaukee area. Brian came over uh, one afternoon and said, hey, let's go tonight and, and see this guy. His name is Gordon Gano. He's playing with his brother. And I think you'll like him because he's kind of like a pint sized Lou Reed imitator. And I said, oh, OK, that sounds intriguing. So we went to go see Gordon, and he was very interesting to watch, had a number of good songs already. And we decided after the show, in talking with Gordon, that we would get together and we would play some music, the three of us, and see what would happen.
1: So it was a very um, spontaneous kind of uh, time when we first started playing together. And then we really liked it, so we were going to play just in the summer of 1981. I had graduated that year from high school. As I recall, both Brian and Victor were planning on moving to Minneapolis and joining some friends and having a band there. So they told me that this was fun, but it was only going to be for the summer of 1981. And then Violent Femmes were going to be no more by the time it was the fall.
3: Brian and I had already decided that we were going to move up to Minneapolis because I had some friends up there that we're getting some music activities together. So Brian and I were gonna move up there and and see if we could find our fame and fortune there. But after we started playing with Gordon, we realized that it was probably a good idea to stay in Milwaukee and keep working with Gordon. And we
1: really liked how we were sounding. So then we decided to make more of a go of it as a band. But we did a little rehearsing and then we felt we were ready to play and then we couldn't find any place that would let us play. We tried and we tried. So that's when we started playing out on the street. We only found out some years later, there's a word for it called busking, but uh, we had no knowledge of that. And in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and particularly at that time, maybe still to this day, but certainly then there was nobody doing that. Nobody was out playing music on the street. And we were doing that because we couldn't find any place to play that would let us play. Well, we were attempting to audition
2: at a club called Century Hall. We walked in there and we walked up to the manager's office and said, hey, we'd like to audition. And he said, oh, well, just give me a tape. I don't really want to listen to you right now. And we said, oh, well, we're auditioning for a live gig. So how about if we play for you? There's only the three of you. We don't book trios. We only book quartets. So he was brushing us off. We left pretty discouraged. So we decided to go play on the street. And we noticed that the pretender's name was on the marquee of a theater
1: we thought it was a sold-out show there's going to be a line going down and around the block at the for the oriental theater where they were going to play and we thought we can come and play for the most people and they won't run away from us like people always did when we played on the street anybody that we might have known from any kind of a rock or punk world or people that may have played in bands with brian or victor as well they'd cross the street and walk like and pretend they didn't see us it wasn't a cool thing to do it was like the most uncool thing and then we thought people aren't going to be able to run away from us because they'll be in line to see the pretenders and they'll be trapped so we'll be able to have the most people we've ever played for and they're going to be forced to have to listen to us
2: so we set up outside the theater and started playing And James Honeyman Scott was on a break from soundcheck. And he walked past and he listened to us for a while. We didn't know who he was. We just saw somebody looking at us. And then that guy disappeared and came back with a bunch of people, including we saw Chrissy Hine, who we did recognize. And then we realized that they were the pretenders.
3: And they're sitting on a car, leaning them up against a car and they're listening to us. So we get to this one point in our repertoire This song called Girl Trouble, with the famous refrain, Girl Trouble, I've Got Girl Trouble Up My Ass. So anyway, when it gets to that part of the song, Chrissy Hine just starts laughing. She just can't get over it. She's just having the best time. So we get through with the song, and she comes up to us and says, Hi, my name's Chris. Do you guys want a gig tonight? And we look at each other like, yeah, of course we'd love a gig tonight. Where? And she goes, here. Here. We said, on the stage at at the Oriental here? And she goes, yeah. So that night we went from playing for a handful of people outside the theater to playing on the main stage to a packed house that were there to see the pretenders.
1: So our plan of playing for the line didn't work out, but we certainly played for the most people because we played, I'm forgetting now what uh, the Oriental Theater holds, two or 3,000, something of that nature, I think at that time. And we were introduced and whatever number of thousands of people, they all started booing.
2: Their manager, whose name was Dave, came up on stage and said, pretenders will be up shortly. And then audience, ah! but first Milwaukee's own violent FEMS, massive chorus of boos. Everybody was booing us. They did not want to hear us. They didn't know who we were, but they definitely didn't want to hear us especially when he said that we were from Milwaukee. He probably thought that that was going to help us, but it hurt us because Milwaukeeans are very self-deprecating and have an inferiority complex. So they thought, wow, if
1: this band's from Milwaukee, they can't possibly be good. And yet we look on the side of the stage and the pretenders are cheering us along and just like they were so into it. And we thought we were really good. And the fact that nobody agreed with us didn't seem to bother us too much because we were convinced we were good and then it's like nobody thinks we're any good and they want us to go away oh oh the pretenders think we're great you know so it's like yeah that's what we think too it was just this magical day and night and uh, it certainly was very exciting for us and really just confirmed a lot of the things that we felt already
3: true story of course the next day we were back on the street Let
4: me go on. Big hands I know you're the one Body
1: had made a demo with uh, Mark Van Hecke, who had a little home studio, something to record. And he was somebody that Victor DiLorenzo had done work with, it, with theater projects. Um, I think Mark had scored music for the theater, and, and he was interested and excited about what we were doing. And on a trip he made to New York, he got this demo tape to every place that he could think of. And it was Alan Betrock who responded positively i don't think anybody else did and he was the founder of shake which started i believe as a magazine and then became a small indie label as well putting out music that was in the world of the kind of stuff that we were doing also
3: and he came out to milwaukee to see us and he wanted to invest money in the band so we could make the record i had booked time at the studio right after i did that Alan unfortunately had some big health problems come up. So he had to drop out and save the money for his health bills and he had to pull out. So I was in panic mode and it fell on me being the oldest to make this still work because we we didn't want to lose the little deposit that we had put down. So I approached my father and my father out of the goodness of his heart decided to lend me and consequently the band $10,000 to make the record. And my father, being the, the human being that he was, uh, decided that, that he would take a chance on me and, and consequently Violent Femmes. And that's why we have that first
2: record. We were nothing but a bunch of reprobates and almost like homeless people. So we had no credit credit rating. <laughs> so luckily, Victor's father stepped in to help us out that way
1: it was Victor's father who lent the money so that we could still go ahead and make this recording with Mark Van Hecke producing. And one thing I'd like to say that I think is amazing, as I mentioned uh, Mark Van Hecke working on it, Glenn Lorbecky was the engineer. And he might be the only person in the history of music that has this distinction. His claim is that our album was the only record he ever engineered. He'd never recorded any other album. We didn't know that when he was was the house engineer at the studio, but I guess he had never done an album before. And then after that, he got out of the business. So he only did one album ever as an engineer, and it's this Violent Femmes first album, multi-platinum album. Even with the money we had, it really wasn't enough to get, you know, the studio things. Things would take a little more time than we thought they would and all of this. And so there were times where in order to get it done and get it done how we wanted it done, we would book, I don't know, an hour, a couple of hours at night and go in. And then he would stay with us all the way through the night, even though we just paid for an hour or two. He'd stay with us until in the morning he thought that people would start arriving at the studio. So we'd have to, when it was daylight, we had to like scramble out of there and like pretend like we weren't there working all night. And he did that for us.
3: So we're cutting tracks and I would notice after a while we'd come in and wasn't there a, a reverb unit there in that rack? It's gone. Oh, oh, um, it's being fixed. Okay. Then we'd come in again. Wasn't there a compressor that was over there in that rack? Where did that go? Oh, well, um, what they didn't want to tell us, what Glenn Lorbecki, our engineer, who was really the janitor, what he told us is, I just want to be honest with you guys, but the studio is going into receivership. So that's why we'd show up and bits of equipment had been sold off just to try and keep the studio open for another few weeks or what have you so eventually we finished recording with glenn and then we brought in a friend of ours john tanner to mix the album proper with us and that's the the record that you can hear today
1: that's what we got all around which eventually was put out exactly as we had recorded it with slash there was a little bit of positive feedback from some other place where there was a producer who had had a lot of big success who said that they would have considered it to be a demo tape we made. The whole album was, now we're going to go and do it the right way and record it you know, correctly, and that would have just destroyed it, taken away all that magic. So I'm so glad we just stuck to, no, this is it. And that was before we had the deal with Slash. It was just, no, this is it. It really is it, and we're not going to re-record these songs in some other way, with even if somebody's telling us this is the way you really do it.
2: That's the first album. We did that ourselves with no record company, anything. And then eventually we sent it around to more labels and Slash was the only label that was willing to put it out, but they weren't willing to pay for it. They just said they would put it out and hopefully it would recoup. Of course, it went to recoup tens of thousands of times, uh, but they didn't know what to make of it.
3: So thank you again, Dad. If it wasn't for you, there would be no Violent Femmes record.
1: very clear memories of writing blister in the sun because it's so strange i had met somebody at a poetry reading and she must have called me or told me about that she was going to start a band and she had heard i said that i played guitar and this is before violent femmes before there was a violent femmes band and i had never been in a band and um, she said she was having some musicians get together. And she wanted to have a band, and she wanted it to be something like the Plasmatics. And I thought maybe it'd be good if I showed up and volunteered a song, which would be for her to sing. So either I had written it specifically for this, or it was the last thing that I had written, and I thought this would be good. I'll take this last thing that I just wrote. And so it was going to be Blister in the Sun, that I was going to say here you want to do this song um and then must have got a phone call that it was called off and never saw her again heard from somebody that passing on gossip from over 40 years ago saying that she joined a cult and went to Canada that was one, and and I don't even wouldn't even know her name now or anything but um the writing of blister in the sun I was thinking of even having um, a woman sing the song initially as the song. but um, I'm glad it didn't go that way. I'm glad it didn't <laughs> it didn't uh, didn't wind up there.
2: He wrote it for somebody else to sing in a band that Gordon was auditioning for, but didn't make it into the band <laughs> or something like that. So he thought <laughs> she would sing it. and I think maybe she had big hands is this story. I'm not sure. He tells a few different stories
1: yeah i'll explain i'll give my viewpoint on the big hands um it's just funny but it's funny but very flattering to be like as a song any writer would be like now let's dig deeply into this one sentence and why you chose these words and it's like oh it's so nice that that you care you care this much because you know of course i did put a lot of thought even though it came quickly there was thought behind it and the thought there is this that I wanted to have it not be something cliched, like somebody is uh, maybe very dainty and flower-like or just this kind of idea of like small and delicate and that kind of idea of beauty, which you know, it has a real tradition behind it with that. And, and in songs of you know the, the blonde hair and the blue eyes and, and all of that sort of thing has been in lots of songs and so i just thought big hands being like the opposite of the small delicate dainty hands that that would be more interesting in the song and then i also thought that um i do have small dainty delicate beautiful hands so i could see a little attraction to the opposite because i'm attracted to opposites so you know that's that's where on the personal the personal idea for me would be like, "Oh, okay. um'm this is about being attracted to something that's not like me. That's the the other that's not. you know, so that's that's where all that came from.
3: There's a lot of mystery in that song, too. Uh, Gordon has given a couple hints about what he thinks the song is about, but I think what's nice about the song is it is open to one's interpretation.
1: I don't know if there's a name for this when writing something down, Often, if it's something I'm writing quickly, I used to do it more, but occasionally it might still happen that if I'm writing I I write a or if it's supposed to be a I write I and not just in a word with spelling, not like that. But if it's on its own, like if I'm writing I went here, I might write a went here or if I'm writing a dog, I might write I dog and it's not a constant thing. But it happens. And I think that happened with Blister in the Sun. And I hear people sing it either way. Let me go on, like, and then it could be A, Blister in the Sun, or I, Blister in the Sun. And I think I've even sung it a little bit one way and then a little bit the other way. And I like it because they both work. At least they both work for me perfectly fine either way. I think I usually sing like I blister in the sun or do you see now it creates doubt in my mind because I thought it one way and then I wrote it down the other way. So now after we've had this uh, in-depth thinking about it, I'll probably never be able to play the song again or sing it. I, I think I'm done now. That's it. It's just too much. It's it. No, it's it's always fun to play. It's always fun to do. But yeah, lyrically, it also has this kind of aliveness to it because i can kind of it has a couple different ways of that it could go and the idea that people think it has something to do with masturbation is just incredible to me
2: (laughs) but he says it's not about masturbation which most people think it is but it's probably good that people think that because everybody seems to relate to that as something that's desirable to listen to
1: years later like I don't know 20 years afterwards I was talking to somebody and they said something about the song and and then they said oh you know and because you know what it's about you wrote it and I'm like well why don't you tell me what it's about and they're like well you know and I was like well no you know what do you think it's about and then they said well you know you wrote it it's about masturbation I had never heard of that before and according to this random person that I met the whole world Thinks that that's what the song is about.
4: Body and beats, I stay my sheets. I don't even know why. My girlfriend, she's at the end. She is starting to cry. I my head, so I you out. Let, Let me go, go on. on.
2: We knew that it was a good song to start out with. We started out most of our shows with it. The first time we played it, which was the actual first instant that Gordon and Victor and I played together, we started playing Blister in the Sun. And Victor just came up with that drum riff, that
3: da-da-da-da
2: part spontaneously within seconds of playing together. So we were already on a creative roll from the moment we started.
3: Well, that was a crowd pleaser from the very beginning. And it's an interesting song in that you have the introduction or the fanfare, Brian on the acoustic bass. And then you have the, what I call stutter flams. And it's funny in that, that drum motif is the hook of the song. Now, when you watch a lot of sports on television, they use that song now blister in the sun they use that beginning because the audience likes to clap to
2: blister in the sun is really simple but whatever it is it's catchy and it works
1: blister in the sun was never released as a single ever as brian ritchie i think is stated is that we don't have hits we have classics <laughs> which is it's true that the songs that people would think had to have been a hit They were never on any charts. They were never in that sense a hit. They were never a single, but no one would know that now because of where they're at, especially Blister in the Sun, where people know that song and like that song, not knowing who did it, who recorded it or anything. They just know that song.
4: Someone, a person to talk to, someone who'd care to love Could it be you? Could it be you? Situation gets rough, then I start to panic, it's not enough It's just the habit, kid, you're sick, well, darling, you're sick You can all just kiss off into the air, behind my back I can see that
1: Well, Kiss Off is a song that I wrote when I was 15, definitely. It was one of my earlier rock kind of songs. I think it was a way of getting out frustration, like a lot of the songs are. And it wasn't um, somebody writing a song, say, uh, about being a teenager. It was a teenager writing the song about what was real and what felt right to them to put in a song. And I think there's something about that that is really communicated to people and especially to younger people that it comes from such a authenticity of, of just really who's this voice and who's writing this.
3: The quality of Gordon's voice really helps to sell the material because he sounds so young and so fragile, even though some of it is dealing with very adult subject matter and coming from a dark place. He still always has that very young quality about him, which is uh, something that makes the record even more intriguing.
2: Well, when I met Gordon, he had quite a few good songs, which include most, I think, everything on the first album, most of the songs on Hallowed Ground, and a, n- a number of songs that kept appearing on all of our recordings until recently. So he was very prolific songwriter. And when I talked to him about it, he said that he was just so bored, uh, like in school, that he would just write songs in study hall or during class. And and that was his way of keeping mentally occupied. But obviously, he was in a zone to have written so many good songs before even the
1: age of 18. I hope you know this will go down on your permanent record. Well, that's certainly something that I heard either to myself directly or said out loud to the whole class, because I remember from the earliest grades, like a little speech from the teacher for just say, you're, it's the first day of third grade, and the speech will include, you're big third graders now, so you the behavior that you had as second graders will not be tolerated anymore. And every year, it seemed like some version of that.
4: Do it all time I hope you know that this will go down on your permanent record Oh yeah? Well don't get so distressed Did I happen to mention that I'm impressed?
3: Fast, controlled chaos, interesting lyrics, and really bringing to the forefront the whole punk rock ethos. That's where we really let our punk flag fly.
2: We sometimes go into these pretty uh, free-form improvs, and on the recorded version there, there's a short one, and that's a really exciting part of the song. We still do very long improvs on Kiss Off sometimes extend it, do trades. It's just an open section that can go as long or as short as we
3: want. That was something that was built into the band from the beginning because of Brian and I's love of improvisation. So we would take liberties with the structures from night to night. There wasn't just one set way that we would do it. When we were in the middle of one of those long improvisations, we really had to keep our ears open and, and our eyes wide open to watch each other for cues. So that's something that we just developed over time.
2: Well, we were always improvising in every band that we were in, so it was natural that we would also do that with Gordon. Gordon hadn't been in a band before, so he didn't have the opportunity, but he picked up real quick. We took him to see Sun Ra's band, and he had never really heard that kind of music before. But when he saw Sun Ra's band perform, he said, okay, now I understand what you guys are <laughs> trying to do and- and he liked it a lot, so he he is now a convert.
1: I had a lot of stuff that I was raised with musically, but one thing that I had almost no interaction with was jazz and all its different forms. And that really started when I was playing with Brian and Victor. Oh, and Sun Ra is one of the biggest influences on our band, which most people wouldn't know. But with the approach with the music, the approach with a show, definitely stretching the tonalities um, into other areas than pop or rock yeah and the rhythms there are times where early on brian and victor would be playing where i would just i'd have no idea now where the beat was because they were playing around with it so much from where my experience had been where it's like i just have to sort of hang in there or wait it out or sometimes really count with a lot of concentration to not get thrown off by what they were doing. But that's part of the excitement of the music.
4: One, one cause you left me And two, two, two for my family And three, three, three for my heartache And four, four, four for my headaches And five, five, five for my lonely And six, six, six for my sorrow And seven, seven for no tomorrow And eight, eight, I forget what eight was for But nine, nine, nine for lost God Ten, 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 ten You can all
2: just kiss, off and do, yeah. kiss Off also has the the counting section, I guess you could call it, which so many people relate to.
1: Kiss Off, I'm glad about having the counting because I thought it was kind of funny and seemed very real when I got to eight to say, I forget what eight was for and to keep like, because it's every number is for this, for this, for that, and then get to a certain number. Well, I forget what that was for. And that's actually the way I wrote it. And I really, um, that gives me pleasure every time singing it to always say with number eight, I forget what that was for. Kiss Off does sound like it could be somebody counting out pills. That isn't something that I did. I didn't do that. But I'm trying to think when I first wrote it, if that was the thought in my mind, like this is like, and that would be an aspect of the fantasy of the song or or of like a character of the song that's singing this. And it's not just me. Or it's me you know, fantasizing about something, but not something that I'm experiencing or then I will experience. So, I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs>
2: I don't really know how much of Gordon's songs are autobiographical or how much of the persona in his songs are autobiographical. I don't think it's good to interrogate that too much. But Gordon could be writing from a character's point of view with all of these songs or any of them or autobiographical. I'm just not sure. And I don't think it's even really important
1: to know. Things in Kiss Off and things in in most every song have different degrees of something that could be from a journal or a diary, and then also fantasy and things that are not at all from that, but just stuff that I had fun writing and felt like writing and felt like getting into this place of who is this person that's saying I in this song. And it's always been a, a combination of that for me. Going from some songs that are completely that, just a made-up story, everything in it. And others which I could say, okay, well, everything is exactly what I thought and felt or experienced, and then more often a combination of those two. Oh,
4: you can all just kiss off into the air. Behind my back, I can see them stare. they hurt me bad, but I won't mind. they hurt me the do it all the time do it all the time do it all the time do it all the time
2: do it all the time please do not go has to be the worst reggae song that was ever recorded like it is So lame, and yet it works. It's so inauthentic that maybe because it's so inauthentic, we can pull it off.
3: that was almost like a a comedy song we had a few different comedy songs but um it was a song that was fun to play it showed the diversity we had in our repertoire not a particular favorite but it was okay
1: i think i had been listening to a lot of bob marley and other (laughs) and so I always thought of it as a reggae song and then Brian Ritchie with bass and Victor Di Lorenzo with drums percussion they did not play it or approach it as a reggae song and my guitar is accenting a beat that one might play with playing a reggae rhythm so it has a a little combination of things which i think is very interesting going on with it musically in that case
2: reggae is not really so much of a style as it's just a, a vehicle for the song which is a
1: pretty straightforward kind of love song i wasn't with anybody I think when i wrote that i had never been with anybody so i wasn't asking somebody not to go because there wasn't anybody and there never had been anybody so yeah there's certainly a yearning that's in the song which then there would be a lot of yearning that i felt so it just wasn't a page from a diary
4: so all i can do is patiently pray 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 say please please do not ¡Oh!
2: It is one of the very few unaccompanied bass solos on any kind of popular commercial song and rock music so for that alone the song probably is worth existing just from a bass bass kind of perspective but in the early days we would just do songs and we wouldn't even have an arrangement so it probably came about by accident like we got to that part of the song we just didn't know what to do so i, I started playing a solo and then they said, oh, that was good. Let's keep that. But I can't remember. I think that's probably what happened, though.
3: Well, sometimes there would be a drum feature. Sometimes there would be a bass solo. Sometimes Gordon would attempt a guitar solo. They were things that either came about just by repetition of the rehearsal or someone had an idea, hey, let's, let's just put a, a solo here just to kind of break this song up a little bit. So they all were decisions that came quite naturally to, to three people trying to work on material in a room. And I
1: think the bass solo in uh, Please Do Not Go, that that's a, it really does something to have the other instruments stop entirely. So he's only playing his bass playing. It is really something incredible. He's covering so much territory And primarily with an acoustic bass guitar, which has a different sound, but also if somebody else plays it, it doesn't sound the same because he has a way of playing, has a way of feeling the beats, and he does so much with it. It's a signature part of the sound of the band, that's for sure.
2: Well, I wanted to play acoustic bass, but I didn't want to carry around one of those huge upright basses. And I saw that there was this instrument, the acoustic bass guitar, which I got from First, I made my own, and when we started, I was playing that, and then I got one from Ernie Ball, which is still the best one that's ever been on the market. It's, it's just a great instrument. And gave me a, a unique sound, and it can be played, well, I play it kind of in between a bass and a guitar. I serve the function of the bass, but I also do a lot of the solos, and, and I also would play like bass drum parts, on it because Victor was using only a snare. So there was a lot of space in the sound. Gordon playing rhythm guitar, Victor playing only a snare. That left a lot of room for the bass. And that's one of the reasons why my style is so aggressive.
4: How long can the days go on?
2: I think it's one of the interesting things about this album is exactly how many background vocals there are. They're on almost, I think they're on every song. And it really gives you a feeling of the band rather than some bands that don't have background vocals or just have them on some songs. You don't know if it's a solo artist or a band, but when you hear the players and you hear the singers, you can pretty much feel that it's a band. There's definitely a lot of interplay, especially with Victor's uh
0: La la la
3: la.
2: He puts a couple little diversions in there.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm singing on most of the Violent Femmes material background. Ryan is in there occasionally, but uh, I had more of the uh, pitched parts.
1: <laughs> I think all three of us were challenged by um, singing with pitch. There was quite some time spent on the background vocals, even though they just sound, hopefully they just sound like they were just sort of sung out just as we were playing it and doing it, just like we would have done live. But I think those were overdubbed and the ones which require the harmony. Victor was, he was better at that than maybe the other two of us. So uh, he's doing the high vocals and he's the one that would have come up with the vocal harmonies
3: it all came from arranging um for the most part the way our jobs were doled out in violent femmes were gordon would come in with a song meaning a set of lyrics a melody and a chord structure and then brian and i would arrange it we really needed the input of the the three of us to create the perfect monster
4: day after day
1: Yeah, add it up. Um, I'll say one thing, that Brian Ritchie, the album is the way it is because of his idea. For We had all the songs that became our second album, Hallowed Ground, has more more traditional kinds of songs that are, obviously, this is a country song. Obviously, this is a gospel song. This is where we're doing more jazz. This is where we're doing, and we were playing them all when we would play live mixed in with all the songs on our first album before we recorded anything and he had the idea let's keep our first album more streamlined with the material and let's make it be more of a rock album and have it be more of these kind of beats and this approach with these songs and then we can do the other stuff on another album which is what we did and I'm so glad he had that, like, the shape of the whole thing and the form of the whole thing. I don't think it would be quite as popular if it had the gospel tunes and the the folk and the country all mixed in. I don't think it would have the same impact in the same way that it grabbed people and still grabs people who are hearing it for the first time.
3: When you listen to the selection on the second album, Hallowed Ground, it's funny to think that All those songs were floating around at the same time. It's just a matter of our decision as to what made the first record and the second record. So a lot of those songs could have swiped positions. Not many people realize that. Well,
2: we could have released Hallowed Ground first, or we could have put out a double album that had all of the songs, or we could have done a lot of different things. But we decided to put the Poppy songs on the first album. We didn't know that we'd be making more than one album, so we thought it was a good statement. And we thought it it was a a good kind of development of what we'd been loving about punk music, about the direct nature of punk music, and doing something really simple and, and pared down. And I remembered I had strips of paper with the names of the songs, and I just kept shuffling them around like cards in a deck until I got to the point where I thought it, really had a nice flow to it.
1: That was just such a good idea he had to approach it that way. That being said, all of that Brian Ritchie praise coming, I'll give myself a little nod with Add It Up. Because we were rehearsing Add it Up. This is before we recorded it. And he said, we shouldn't play this song. I don't want to play this song. And I'm thinking, I think this is one of our best songs and one of the best songs I've written. Why don't you want to play this song? I said, because it's only two chord changes, and it just goes back and forth the whole song. It never changes. Like, that's boring. That's not good. I don't think we should do the song. And I just, I wouldn't stop playing it.
2: No, that's not true. It's it's my favorite. I love it, even because of the fact that it has two chords, because it goes through so many different sections, even though it's structurally repetitive. So Victor and I are working a lot of different feels in the rhythm section. Some of them are straight-ahead rock and punk. Some are more like Latin or jazz. So it's it's very interesting to listen to it now when I hear it or what, even when I'm playing it. But the great thing about it is when we do it on stage, that song just rocks. It's just like a runaway train. Why can't I get just
4: one kiss? Why can't I get just one kiss? Give me some things that I wouldn't by look at your pants and I need a kiss Why can't I get just one screw Why can't I get just one screw Leave me I know what to do But something won't let me make Love to you
1: Then That pushed himself and Victor With the The rhythm section to keep making all these shifts and changes in the different sections and the dynamics and the way that they keep shifting and changing through the whole tune from his point of view is probably an act of desperation to try to like do something to make this boring song interesting it's just two chords back and forth for however many minutes it goes on
3: long Long song to play. Another one of the classics. I mean, there's so many classics on that first album. I think I was a little bit more open-minded, and I, I always responded to the energy. I thought the energy was really good in that song, and I I liked the way that Gordon performed it. I think it's like our
2: version of Satisfaction. or It's just a song that defines the band, more than Blister in the Sun. I would rather people listen to Add It Up. It's got a lot of great lyrics. And the arrangement is amazing.
4: Why can't I get just one fuck? Why can't I get just one fuck? I guess got something to do with luck. But I waited my whole life for just one day day.
2: not like a groove band like a lot of drummers and bass players they just lock into a groove and it wouldn't matter what the singer was doing they're just going to stick with that monotonous groove we are always trying to play off the lyrics and one of the things about playing acoustically and this includes what Victor was playing is that it really does allow us to back up Gordon and get out of his way and make the vocals the front A lot of bands drown out the vocals. Like you read the lyric sheet and you're like, wow, this guy's Shakespeare. Too bad I can't hear it. There's too many guitars. The cymbals are too loud. That hi-hat is too shrill. You know, there's always something else in the recordings and you can't hear the vocals. So we thought if we had play acoustic, even though we were playing punk, get out of the way of the vocals and let Gordon shine. My mama, mama, mom, my
4: mom. If you kept your eye, your eye on your son. I know you've had problems, you're not the only one. When the sugar left, he left you on the run. So, mo my mama, mama, mom, my mom. Take a look now, look what your boy has done. He's walking around like he's number one. He went downtown and he got all my guns. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. You know you got my sympathy. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me! Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me! Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me! You know you got my sympathy, but don't shoot,
1: shoot, shoot that thing at me! I think there's a little bit in there inspired by "Bird is the word" of just like when, I, when I'm going ma, "ma ma 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 ma," you know. And uh I remember hearing the first kind of rapping that I ever heard was with Blondie's version, which it was probably in there somehow too with me like doing this longer talking thing. So there's just so many different influences which just go into the writing and then go into the performing of of what we're doing.
2: And this is one of the interesting things about Gordon's songwriting. You've got Blister in the Sun, which has so few words, it may as well be a haiku. And then you have something like added Up, which is practically a precursor to rap or or something where there's so many words. He didn't have a formula. He was working a lot of different angles. Gordon was really into the punk scene. His favorite was Johnny Thunders. He was also into Bob Dylan. He was into Johnny Cash. He was into Hank Williams. We were all into all that stuff and more. He had also been singing in church a lot because his father was a minister. Some of the openness of the lyrics was creeping his, well, the people in his his father's church did not like some of the lyrics, like once the band became known, didn't like some of the subject matter, but his parents always backed him. So he had the freedom and he had support from his family, even though they probably didn't really like having some of that stuff come out
4: down kitchen at the top of the stairs can i mix in with your affairs share a smoke make a joke grasp and reach for a leg of hope Words to memorize, words hypnotize, words make my mouth exercise. Words all fail the magic prize. Nothing I can say when I'm in your thighs. But oh my my, my 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 mother, I would love to love you, lover. City's restless, it's ready to pounce. But in your bedroom, ounce for ounce.
1: And- I know one thing about it that my mother was not happy about that one of the first things that was written up on the band or on the album said that added up was a song about me smoking pot with my mom. So that's another way of thinking about the song, except I had never thought of that. I never did that, and she never did that. She was not happy about having it in, in, in print that this song's about me smoking pot with her. But somebody, that's how they took the song or they took part of the song to be that. Brian has uh, pointed out to me, Brian Ritchie, that he said that if you're writing Mama in a way that's sort of, you know, the blues way of writing it or in the tradition, it's spelled M-A-M-A. And I think I had written it out as M-O-M-M-A or something like that so that you see Mom and then Mama. Yeah. Yeah. That's a mistake on my part. So I think that's got people thinking it really is his mom he's talking about.
4: Oh my, 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 my mother. I would love to love you, love. She's restless, it's ready to pounce. Go here in your bed from ounce to ounce. I've given you a decision to make. Things to lose, things to take. Just she's about ready to cut it up. She said, wait a minute, honey, I'm going to add it up. I'm going to add it up.
3: As performers, what we wanted to give to the audience was a little bit of heaven and a little bit of hell. So the observations that Gordon would make as a young man having to do with religion or sex or the dark nature of of humanity was probably being fed by his interest in groups like the Velvet Underground, Patti Smith, uh, James Chance, the Ramones, all different kinds of people that were coming up to the punk ranks at that time. So Gordon is very intelligent and a very good songwriter. So he was incorporating a lot of things that were affecting him at that time as a young man growing up in America.
2: Obviously, uh, Gordon's songwriting is, was pretty radical at the time because in general, like if you look at the songwriters such as Mick Jagger or whoever, whatever kind of boring stuff was happening, Aerosmith, whatever, they're all trying to be really cool and they're trying to convince you that they are cool. And Gordon wasn't trying to do that. He was just putting out his either his autobiographical stuff, his fantasies, And it's kind of hard to tell the difference because the persona in some of the fantasy songs is quite similar to his real persona in the autobiographical songs.
4: Good reason to worry,
2: worry, worry, Well, you can hear that it sounds a lot like Ballad of a Thin Man by Bob Dylan, so we related it that way, but the lyrics are obviously way different. It had that kind of waltz type characteristic or a 6'8 kind of feel, so it's kind of a bluesy feel in, in a sense, so we just Played it freely like that.
1: I don't know if it was in my head, but the beginning of it, to me, sounds like it could be in some musical. I grew up hearing a lot of musicals. My um, my mother had been on, in a musical on Broadway in the 1950s, and my father directed musicals, and they, they did musicals. They were often doing them together. And so I grew up hearing the musicals of the periods from like the 40s through the 60s so to me the beginning of that might have been in my head like almost like a people worry what are they worrying about today maybe a little more up tempo and different arrangement but it was probably came out of hearing so many of that period of musicals i think that confessions is more of a a flight of fancy i'm so lonely i don't think gonna take it I'm so lonely. Well, certainly I was lonely. You know, uh, so it's just it's this, you know, a mix. There's a blurring of things. Like there's a character there, but then it's also me in some way, it's me too and 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 yet then it's not. And I think I, I wrote that song and I wrote probably, you know, to some degree every song with that kind of consciousness with the writing.
2: Because of the way the lyrics are structured, it it creates incredible peaks and and valleys including the, the militaristic side of some of the lyrics where it's very punchy. Another song that has a good arrangement.
3: I got to play sit-down drum set on that particular piece. So so that was something different uh, as opposed to most of the other songs where I was doing the stand-up routine where I had my Gretsch snare drum, the transophone, and, and one cymbal. But uh, I got to sit down on a four-piece uh, Gretsch drum set, and I had... Uh, two cymbals and a hi-hat. So that definitely had a more of an aggressive sound. And also the freak out is is really nice in, in the center of that piece, I really like that.
4: We got an army, we'll teach you how to act like a man. Have we got an army? Let me tell you, we can fight. Have we got an army? And we're gonna do it tonight. tonight. tonight.
2: tonight. Victor is the reason why we were able to have such dynamics because of his jazz background, his brushwork. And most rock drummers have loud or louder. That's their two settings. But Victor would frequently make the music more exciting by making it quieter, which is actually pretty radical. It's a common thing in classical music. or A lot of music around the world has this idea that you can make the music quiet and that draws people in but not much in rock music so Victor was great that way
1: Victor DiLorenzo playing primarily with brushes even with fast rock songs he's playing with brushes which is so unusual that one time I was playing with a drummer that told me that it couldn't be done or he just refused he wouldn't play with brushes on a rock song that wasn't a ballad I think coming out of playing out on the street with just having Victor bring a snare drum and some brushes and, and then developing this other instrument that he called the transophone.
3: Well, the transophone is a folk art instrument that Brian and I and Jerry Fortier invented. So I took this metal bushel basket, turned it over on its bottom and put it on top of the floor tom. And then I played this contraption. And you could scrape the top with the bottom of the brush, or you could play the side of the transophone or the top. So I could get different kinds of sounds out of this one thing. And when I started using this in conjunction with the snare drum, I had my own little kind of a percussive orchestra that I could haul around easily. And because of the way I divided the beat up onto the drum itself, I could suggest the idea of a drum set, even though of course there was no drum set.
4: Last night, I was reminded of just how bad it had gotten and just how sick I had
3: become. Well, it starts with a, uh, a drum introduction, so that's nice. Good energy. I love the background vocals. It's a good sing-along song, and, and it always would pick people up. When we would throw it into the set, no matter where we would play it, people would really get excited when we'd start playing that song
2: well that's a really poppy song and um we equated it to kind of
1: 60s pop music prove my love I think I wrote it I was listening to a lot of Johnny Thunders and the heartbreakers that would have been my favorite group for a certain stretch of time and they had songs that prove my love they could have done a great version of so it was just having fun writing a song like that just kind of playful some of the lyrics hopefully come across as being a little playful
4: but it could change with this relationship dd range we've all been through some shit if what thing i think this thing's begun oh, tell me now what do i have to do your coming 31 flavors We're out of mints past the lifesavers i'm dropping hints candy
2: for candy, tongue. funny story is that when we first started rehearsing it with gordon we got to the point where the guitar solo happens and you know we had been doing a verbal walk through the science okay we'll do one verse and we'll do another verse then you play the guitar solo and then we'll do another verse and uh we got to the guitar solo, and he didn't do anything. I said, this is the space for the guitar solo. <laughs> he says, "I don't know. I never played a guitar solo before. I don't know what to do." So <laughs> we we showed him what to do, and that was literally the first time Gordon played a guitar solo. So I remember that as a fun moment. It was really nice to to be
1: there, you know, in such an early stage in someone's musical development. I remember the first time that we had. Uh, a rehearsal of some sort brian telling me now here's a good spot take a guitar solo and i was just i like what are you talking about i've never played a solo in my life kind of thing and he's like well here's how you do it
2: he has the ability to play essentially rhythm guitar solos that are really interesting more interesting than having somebody wanking away on the guitar like eric clapton
1: does that guitar solo came from playing out on the street where It's a rhythm guitar solo because single notes weren't going to, from an acoustic guitar, it was going to make the sound disappear rather than having a solo that is able to be heard. So that's where that came from, is just trying to play full chords and do something rhythmically that can still make it so somebody could hear it during an instrumental section.
4: Just last night I was reminded of just how bad it had gotten and just how sick I had become.
3: Third verse, same as the first. Well, I think the influence was from um, Hermits Hermits. I think it was the song, I'm Henry 8th I am Henry 8th I am, I am. But I think that was the influence rather than the Ramones.
2: Well, that would have been from Herman's Hermits, and if the Ramones did it, maybe it was also that, but yeah, we were aware of that Herman's Hermits kind of reference, and Gordon certainly would have been the one who came up with that.
1: When I did that, I got that from the Ramones, and then it was years later, I heard this 60s group, which was a very popular song, and I was like, wow, the Ramones, I'm sure, got it from this other song. And that's great. I wonder if they, where did they get it from? Maybe there's even an earlier one. It doesn't feel very serious or deep to me as a song, but uh, at the end, going out, it's sort of playing around with, I guess, some cliches from songs about climbing a mountain and crossing an ocean. I just had fun putting that stuff in. I had somebody just in the last year tell me something about that song, Prove My Love, and saying i'll do anything and i'll i'll be it all and and that means actually in reality that means i'll do the dishes i'll take out the garbage that's it's that's the important stuff not climbing a mountain or crossing an ocean Promise now that's a song we enjoy playing and we play live almost all the time, but it's certainly not a song that people would often ever bring up to me or mention. I think people like it okay, but I don't think it's like a a big song for most anybody, but we we enjoy playing it. I'm still surprised I wrote that with my certain basic abilities with the guitar, and there's just constant fast chord changes going on. That was pretty Pretty extreme for me to be writing that or even attempting that. But there's a definite pattern that's going there, and it's sort of this blues kind of thing. But there's sort of like these riffs that are on these chord changes that go very quickly. The riff is
2: quite similar to maybe like a Velvet Underground or Lou Reed kind of riff. And I've often wondered if what's the name of the White Stripes song? <laughs> It's almost the same as the Promise riff and i know that jack white liked the them so i wonder if he was inspired by that riff
4: oh you know that i want your loving but my logic tells me it never gonna happen and then my defenses say i didn't want it anyway you know sometimes i'm a liar could you ever want me to love you could you ever want me to care disregard my nervousness please ignore my vacant
1: stare i would be nervous speaking to any girl i might have had some interest in to the point of probably not speaking to them so uh yeah there was probably a lot of that wound up inside me so probably a combination of things I really felt, and also knowing I'm writing a song and having fun writing a song.
2: Yeah, he was pretty nervous and and jittery. He was only 18 years old when we started, so he was very young. He was finding his way, and sometimes it was a character, I think, and sometimes it was him, but the nervous aspect is definitely is him.
3: (laughs) Well, he was quite cool and and calm, but when he'd get on stage, he would would get more uh, aggravated and also... The three of us were playing characters. I mean, from time to time I would be the manic drummer, Brian would be the consummate musician, and Gordon would be the singer with the heart on his sleeve, somewhat whiny. I think Rolling Stone, when the first album came out in the review, they said that Gordon's voice could empty a room faster than a methane explosion.
4: Do you know what it's like to hate? When it's way down deep inside. Oh god, I hate what spins on my life. I feel the pain. I feel the night. I oh, would have ruin ruined my salvation. Ruin my
2: Used to do it live it had a lot more of the spoken word section in the middle of the song he's doing some spoken word but we used to do like a very long version that had a lot more words so we simplified it for the recording
1: there was some editing which i am so glad for myself not in the recording studio but before then in the writing because i had a whole long section of promise that went into what I probably imagined to be some kind of poetry and probably was inspired by Patti Smith, but with nothing of the, of the talent or inspiration of, of what I was writing. Um, and I am so glad I somehow realized that and got that taken out before we recorded to keep it a tighter song um and not just have it meander and go into like just having one thought go to another And i do recall something about a palm tree or lemons or something that I... <laughs> so it's really good it's not in the song anymore <laughs> To the Kill is uh, <laughs> that is the song. Absolutely, that is the least popular on our first album. There's no question for me. Uh, and yeah, it's a little feeling of when we play it, people are waiting for you know this to be done, and then we get to the next song that they really want to hear. But I think we've always enjoyed playing it, um, just the way we kind of we arranged it.
2: There are sections in there where we really go out the way the rhythm almost falls apart or it's just just implied and where n- nobody's actually playing it and then it snaps back into the verse. The bass being intermittent during some of the improvs was I was flipping the toggle switch, which is something that I probably got from Pete Townsend from the who cause it did, 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 did that kind of thing, but you don't usually do it on bass. So that would have been my particular innovation.
3: That was us thinking on our feet i mean that's that's the way we played some of those songs that were so wide open to improvisation you had to really depend on your other members of the of the trio to work as a unit with you and in that way we had the power to go wherever we wanted
1: Before we recorded it and before there was a band violent fems i played that song solo with an acoustic guitar at a talent night competition at a disco uh where i like to go to dance in milwaukee and and i got second place <laughs> i think i think everybody was so shocked Because I think everyone else did like a karaoke kind of thing. And to have me just pull out a guitar and just do that song. um, Because for me, that song always felt like, and I don't think we really went there with how we played it, and probably wasn't in Brian Ritchie or Victor DiLorenzo's mind at all with doing it. But in my mind, I was thinking of that song like a Prince song. So that's just going on in my head. I'm thinking of it going like in a Prince direction. That's
2: one of the very few songs where we almost try to be a little bit funky in our dorky white way. But it's a little bit funky. And um, I think that came out because Gordon was hanging around like in discos and stuff. Yeah, he was trying to be funky. and, And you can hear that a little bit in the music.
3: It's not just learning the songs and playing the songs. That was never the intent of Violent Femmes. We were always trying to get ideas across. Whether it be a darker song like To the Kill or or something like uh, Please Do Not Go, they come from different worlds, is how we would interpret them. And all those different worlds made up Gordon's notebook, which was he was famously had this notebook where he had tons of lyrics. Probably has still some lyrics in there that we never Never did anything with. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much the whole ideology behind recording anything in that first album.
4: Beautiful girl, love dress, high school smile.
3: Yeah, it's a little odd. it's taken on more of a more of a creepy notion now. <laughs> he was a teenager, so
2: what else would he be writing about? I think it's remarkable that such a popular song was basically built around the xylophone riff.:
1: Very inspired for Brian to play the uh, xylophone on that or the xylophone marimba, think a xylophone anyway um. Yeah, it was just a, a great way to approach doing the song.
2: Well, sometimes we would go play on the street as a trio. There were many other times when Gordon and I would just do it, because Victor was, Victor was the most domesticated person at the time. So he had some other life, whereas Gordon and I would sometimes just go as a, as a duo. And one night, I didn't have my bass, but I had a xylophone. So we were playing. It was actually, we were playing across the street from the same theater where we were discovered by the Pretenders. And he said, well, I have this song that's kind of like in D minor and I'm just starting to work on it. So that was Gone, Daddy, Gone. And and so I had the xylophone and, and we just worked it up that night.
3: I recall that when we were rehearsing it, we were talking about adding the other percussion elements and the background vocals and trying to piece it together. Rather than trying to do it live, which, which we could not because Brian, of course, was, was doubling on the solo instrument, the xylophone, and also playing bass, so he couldn't do them both at once. And that was exciting to me because I like the idea of multi-track recording.
2: Sometimes we would play it with just the xylophone, the guitar, and the drums. Sometimes we would have somebody else play bass. Sometimes Mark Van Hecke, our producer, would play bass. And it became more of a thing. I was really inspired by Brian Jones because of the work he had done with the stones on marimba and, and xylophone. So Brian Jones and John Cale were my big models of being people who are multi-instrumentalists and bringing exotic instrumentation into the into the mix. And that was my big thing on that album was the xylophone on Gone Daddy
4: Gone.
2: I was just improvising a solo, and Mark Van Hecke, who was the producer, he said, you can't just improvise all the time. Sometimes you have to compose something. So he asked me to actually write a solo. So I thought about it, and I realized that I had whatever amount of bars, like I I don't know if it's 16 or whatever it is, and I did construct the solo. So even now, I play it the same way. And even when Narls Barkley did a cover of it, they said that they were really drawn to it by the xylophone part. And they copied it, but they copied the sound, but it was a keyboard. So they, I wish they would have used the real xylophone, but it was great for them to revive the song.
1: The only kick drum-like thing is in Gone Daddy Gone, which is one of the only songs I think that we did overdubs on the on any of the instruments, which has, uh, I think it's just a marching bass drum that's playing through there
3: that's a scotch marching bass drum that's keeping the beat then i'm playing uh brushes on the Gretsch snare drum and the transophone and i think there's uh, a crash symbol involved as well
2: but it is kind of a pastiche of a lot of different things including if you listen to the section where we trade back and forth that's a direct quote from remake remodel by roxy music so we we mixed a whole lot of stuff together on that song including muddy waters it's one of the least least original songs that we've ever done so i wouldn't point to it as a great accomplishment but it was it was a fun way of mixing a whole lot of different elements
1: Oh, another thing in that song is that there was, coming out of playing live, I think I just improvised one time some lines that I had heard. I know it's a Willie Dixon-written song, but I had probably heard Muddy Waters' version of doing it before even uh, Willie Dixon. And I put those lines in there, and uh, it was just kind of my way of like a little lyric improv. And it worked, and I really liked it, so kept doing it. And then when we were going to record, I asked our manager and producer, Mark Van Hecke, about... You know, is this going to be any 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 issue here? Because this is actually from another song. And he told me, no, no, it's fine. Not a problem at all. Well, of course, it was years later. It's like, you know, it's like, great. I'm well, I, I'm joined the the category of uh, in this respect with uh, the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and you know, I'm sure many others. And I was just like, well, I wanted to do right by this, but I was given the wor- just the absolute worst disastrous advice, and I just believed it. Anyway, so we made good with that, you know, of uh, got that straightened out. So I usually when I sing the song now, I don't even have that in because I don't feel like that's really part of the song. That was just something I put in as an extra thing that was fun. But it's there on the first album, and now it's been credited. So I've actually co-written a song with one of the greatest blues writers of all time willie dixon we've we've wrote a song together
2: (laughs) our record company was supposed to be a very hip and with it record company but they did not understand or they couldn't conceive of a single that didn't have a full drum set So that's the reason why they chose Gone Daddy Gone as the single, because there's also, we overdubbed a a bass drum on that. As weird as it is, it's still, it's there. So they said, oh, well, this song has a full sound.
3: I think for them, they were going by something maybe that they would think more normal, or something that could be commercial that had a fuller sound. Probably Slash was, was thinking with Gone Daddy Gone that they'd have a better chance of getting on the radio with it. So somehow
2: they had... This really, you know, actually idiotic viewpoint that a song couldn't be a single if it didn't have conventional instrumentation.
1: Good Feeling was kind of a big production with us with uh, having a violin and a little bit of a piano, some keyboard. I think that's the the only little bit on the whole record that has another musician other than the three of us and playing a little bit of a of a keyboard. So this is
2: the closest to a studio constructed arrangement that we that and gone daddy gone. Those are the only two that were kind of constructed in the studio using overdubs to have better arrangements than what we could do live at that point.
3: Mark Van Hecke plays beautiful piano on it, and the atmosphere in that recording really suits the song. I think that was very successful. It just has a, a melancholy to it that that is not completely sad. There's almost a longing for memories of a better time.
4: You're leaving when I need you here Just a little longer
2: We thought of it as like a very Velvet Underground type song. People said that we sounded a lot like the Velvet Underground, which we were didn't really sound like it. But in this case, it was a song like some of the Velvet Underground ballads were. So it has that same kind of wasted, kind of frail, maybe messed up on drugs kind of feeling to it. In fact, that's what the good feeling probably is. The good feeling, why can't you stay with me long? is like drugs wearing off. So it can also be interpreted like my mother, that was her favorite song, and she would have never thought about the drug connotation but she probably just heard it as a love song
1: good feeling that song I've had some people tell me is their favorite song of all time which is such an honor you know people in my family have said that's their favorite song of, of songs that I've done in, in my family so you know I, I feel really good about the song
2: so like I said earlier people can interpret these things all different ways and that's one of the songs that can be interpreted many different ways
4: Sketch of a fantasy laughing at the sunrise like he's been up all night. Slipping and sliding, what a good time! But now, have to find a bed that can take this.
1: I chose to take out some other lyrics that were in good feeling that would have absolutely destroyed and ruined the song. So I'm awfully glad about that, that even as the age that I was, I was able to make some critical decisions about maybe taking out some of these other words that I've written because they wouldn't have helped the song at all. It would have been terrible. So I was glad I was able to do a little shaping and realized what was the essential part and what was good for the song and what wasn't.
3: I love the lyric that Gordon wrote and also the finesse that we played that song. So we showed people that we weren't just this bang up folk punk band. We could deliver a ballad in in a very satisfying way.
2: And if you listen to the song from a perspective of playing it, it sounds very simple to the casual listener. But to play it, there are several different tricky sections that Gordon has put in there. So we had to obviously learn those and yet make it flow naturally. This was another one that we added some instrumentation to. So Mark Van Hecke plays piano on it. And Gordon plays the violin
1: i'm not sure whose idea that was for playing the violin but uh i like that it's there i like doing that and i've had people tell me over the years with my violin playing that i've inspired them to play violin and why because they see me do it and they go well i can do that you know i think i've inspired a lot of musicians because it's like well yes you can you can do that this is what i'm doing and just doing my best at it trying my best you know it's it's a little shaky but uh It's sincere.
2: It sounds really vulnerable and even musically vulnerable. That song could have been so much slicker. It could have been like one of those really stupid syrupy Fleetwood Mac or whatever type things. And instead, it sounds like we can barely play. It sounds like we're at the end of the night. We're kind of trashed. It's got that torch song feeling to it. So the arrangement helps to reinforce the subject matter and the, and the lyrics and not by being good musicians, but just by being willing to be bad musicians.
3: Yeah. That one's really pretty. I really enjoyed that song. Well, once we had the collection together, it became apparent that that might be a nice way to close out the album. Good feeling.
2: We knew that we didn't want to make an album with three or four of those songs but we thought it was a good way to end the album like send people away feeling
1: kind of wistful and nostalgic we wanted to end the album with this with this song good feeling that seemed like obvious to us that this is how it should end
4: Well,
1: Well, I think we were very happy with the album, but then we knew we had this challenge because we didn't have the label we thought we were going to sign to and was going to put it out. That wasn't happening. So now we still had to find some way to get this out. And that, that took a lot. And finally it was Slash. Slash rejected it. And then later, Bob Biggs, the president, said he was signing us because he was sick of every day coming into work and hearing the music being played of a band that he turned down because the people who worked there just kept playing it because they loved it. And uh, that's actually how we got signed.
3: Well, there was a woman at Slash Records named Anna Statman, and she loved Violent Fence. She's the one that finally sold it to Bob Biggs, the president of the company. The record came out and it was getting good reviews. There were some that didn't understand the record or or were comparing it too much to what was happening in, in modern music at that time. We
2: knew that the first album was going to be perceived as a great work of art, but we also knew that that didn't mean anything because the music industry had degraded itself so much and... The pop music of the day was so bad that we thought that even though we made a masterpiece, it might fall on deaf ears or just get a cult audience like most of our favorite bands were getting. Like Our favorite bands were people like Television, Richard Hell, and these were, these were people that were selling dozens of records. You know, it's like we knew that they were great, but we also knew that the masses didn't know about them. And we thought we might suffer the same plight and in fact at first it looked that way but then the word of mouth spread and gradually after about i think seven or eight years the album became it entered the charts as a platinum album because it had just been selling you know some copies this month the next month some
1: there's somebody who it must have been about 10 years or so maybe more afterwards that uh i met somewhere who said to me and they love the first album and they said tell me what what does the cover look like i've never seen it i've only seen it on cassette tapes that people have made at parties and things i've never seen the cover what does it look like and that goes again to how people have heard it and just maybe passed it on even if it's on a cassette tape that somebody made you know from the record for somebody to say i've never even seen it but they knew and loved the first album.
2: I'm sure it still happens uh, that people send a link to it or something. And uh, yeah, we always relied on word of mouth uh, more than the commercial music business to spread the word. And it is the best way to spread the word. Anecdotally, we have heard from people that heard about us from their older siblings. Or even now, sometimes we have upwards of three generations of fans. So you have like the... Grandmother, who was the original fan, and then they raised the kid on our music. And then those people have had kids, and they're, and they're bringing the grandchildren to the gig. So it's even become like a family heirloom.
3: It has really become something that's handed down from generation to generation. I don't think that's so strange because that record depicts adolescence in such a wonderful, frightening way that it's almost like a template for growing up. You don't
4: always seem, always seem like you're leaving When I
2: Well, in a spiritual sense, that probably was the most unified time in the band recording history. But this would be a common, common to a lot of bands is that when you're making your first album, we didn't have anything else on our minds. None of us were married. None of us had kids. Some of us didn't even have a place to live. We could think of nothing else but music. So when you have the absence of distraction, that creates focus. And I think you can hear that focus on our first album. And not to say anything bad about our subsequent recordings, but you can't, you cannot recreate that. We would never again be able to all be relatively in the same place mentally and emotionally and spiritually. So... That's probably one of the other things that makes the album so resilient. So I have no problems with our first effort being our best effort or our most renowned effort. We're lucky to have found an audience.
3: I'm still very proud of that first album as I'm sure Gordon and Brian are. We put our heart and soul into that record and and, uh, literally there was money on the line. So we had to make good. I'm glad we accomplished the mission. I still
1: feel good about the record. There's nothing I would change. I wouldn't want to change anything. I think the thing that strikes me with every one of the tracks is that there's an energy there. There's a certain energy that's happening, which of course is the instrumentation and how it's recorded, all these things. But there's just there seems to be just this thing, this something that's there, something that's that I would just call a kind of an energy that's there. So that's another thing too with this first album. Anytime I hear it, I'm usually, for the first moment, I recognize that I'm hearing something I really like. It's like, I really like this. What is this? And that's all happening in less than a second. Followed by, wow, that's our band. That's great, you know, because my first feeling was like, I really like this. This sounds so good, and this is what I like. And it's like, oh, it feels, it's really a nice feeling. And that still happens with the first album.
0: Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about violent femmes. You'll also find a full transcript of this episode and a link to purchase violent femmes self titled. Thanks for listening.